made it to yet another scrambling university. Hey, by the way, on the backdrop, it looks like this is episode 174. Zen on the art of motorcycle maintenance. Discussion. Chapter 12. Oh, I think in this star date time field, this is something about like uh, December 29th, 2022. And we have our fearless co-pilot Scrappy-Doo on board. Always good to have a dog around when you're talking about metaphysics. <laughs> Always consult dog. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so I laid down uh, tracks 12 through 18 in the last 48 hours. Uh, they are all up on the playlist on Odyssey. www.odyssey.com. O-D-Y-S-E-E.com. And you look for, oh, guess who you look for? Scrambling. And when you find my channel. You'll see the playlist says Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And it's just one through 18 right now, uh, all read out loud. You could listen to it two times fast. You are listening to the talking fast. Or regular speed, if you want to think about it a little bit. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's how I laid the tracks down. It is an audiobook. You don't have to listen to any of these discussions that are all on the Scrambling University podcast. You can go direct and just listen to the book if you want to hear me read it to you. All right, with that, enough ado. Let's get on with the show. What do you think, dog? Okay, he agrees. Here we go. Chapter 12. Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. Spoken by Scramblin. Chapter 12. At Cook City, John and Sylvia look and sound happier than I have seen them in years. And we whack into our hot beef sandwiches with great wax. I'm happy to hear and see all their high country exuberance, but don't comment much. Just keep eating. Outside the picture window, across the road, are huge pines. Many cars pass beneath them on their way to the park. We're a long way down from the timberline now, warmer here, but covered over with an occasional low cloud ready to drop rain. I suppose if I were a novelist rather than a Chautauqua orator, I'd try to develop the characters of John and Sylvia and Chris with action-packed scenes that would also reveal inner meanings of Zen and maybe art and maybe even motorcycle maintenance. That would be quite novel, but for some reason, I don't feel quite up to it. They're friends, not characters. And as Sylvia herself once said, I don't like being an object. So a lot of things we know about one another, I'm simply not going into. Nothing bad, but not really relevant to the Chattaquan. That's the way it should be with friends. At the same time, I think you can understand from the Chattaqua why I must always seem so reserved and remote to them. Once in a while, they ask questions that seem to call for a statement 
of what the hell I'm always thinking about. But if I were to babble what's really on my mind about, say, the a priori presumption of the continuity of a motorcycle from second to second and do this without benefit of the entire edifice of the Chattaqua, they'd just be startled and wonder what's wrong. I really am interested in the continuity and the way we talk and think about it and so tend to get removed from the usual lunchtime situation. And this gives an appearance of remoteness. It's a problem. It's a problem of our time. The range of human knowledge today is so great that we're all specialists and the distance between specializations has become so great that anyone who seeks to wander freely among them almost has to forego closeness with the people around him. The lunchtime here and now stuff is a specialty too. Chris seems to understand my remoteness better than they do, perhaps because he's more used to it and his relationship to me is such that he has to be more concerned. In his face, I sometimes see a look of worry or at least anxiety and wonder and then discover that I'm angry. If I hadn't seen his expression, I might not have known it. Other times, he's running and jumping all over the place, and I wonder why, and discover that it's because I'm in a good mood. Now I see he's a little nervous and answering a question that John had evidently directed to me. It's about the people we're staying with tomorrow, the Deweezes. <clears throat> I'm not sure the whole question was, but added, he's a painter. He teaches fine arts at the college there, an abstract impressionist. They ask how I came to know him, and I have to answer that I don't remember, which is a little evasive. I don't remember anything about him except fragments. He and his wife were evidently friends of Phaedrus, Phaedrus's friends, and he came to know them that way. They wonder friends. what an engineering writer like myself would have in common with an abstract painter. And I have to say again that I don't know. I mentally file through the fragments for an answer, but none comes. Their personalities were certainly different. Whereas photographs of Phaedrus's face during this period show alienation and aggression. A member of his department half jokingly called it a subversive look. And some photographs of the Deweese from the same period show a face that is quite passive, almost serene, except for a mild questioning expression. In my memory is a movie about a World War I spy who studied the behavior of a captured German officer who looked exactly like him by means of a one-way mirror. He studied him for months until he could imitate every gesture and nuance of his speech. Then he pretended to be the escaped officer in order to infiltrate the German army command. I remember the tension and the excitement as he faced his first test with the officer's old friends to learn if they would see through the imposter. Now I have some of the same feelings about Deweese, 
who will naturally presume I'm the person he once knew. Outside, a light mist has made the motorcycles wet. I take out the plastic bubble from the saddlebag and attach it to the helmet. We'll be entering Yellowstone Park soon. The road ahead is foggy. It seems like a cloud has drifted onto the valley, which isn't really a valley at all, but more of a mountain pass. I don't know how well Deweese knew him and what memories he'll expect me to share. I've gone through this before with others and have usually been able to gloss over awkward moments. The reward each time has been an explanation of knowledge about Phaedrus that has greatly aided further impersonation and which over the years has supplied the bulk of the information I've been presenting here. From the fragments of memory I have, Phaedrus had a high regard for Deweese because he didn't understand him. For Phaedrus, failure to understand something created tremendous interest and Deweese's attitudes were fascinating. They seemed all haywire. Phaedrus would say something he thought was pretty funny and Deweese would look at him in a puzzled way or else take him seriously. Other times, Phaedrus would say something that was very serious and deep concern, and Deweese would break up laughing as though he had cracked the cleverest joke he had ever heard. For example, there is the fragment of memory about a dining room table whose edge veneer had come loose, and with Phaedrus, at which Phaedrus Bad reader. had reglued. He held the veneer in place while a glue was set by wrapping a whole ball of string around the table, round and around and around. We saw the string and wondered what it was all about. That's my latest sculpture, Phaedrus had said. Do you think it's think it kind of builds? Instead of laughing, Deweese looked at studied it for a long time and finally said, where did you learn all this? For a second, Phaedrus thought he was continuing with joke, but he was serious. Another time, Phaedrus was upset about something failing, some failing students. Walking home with Deweese under some trees, he had commented on it, and Deweese had wondered, why he took it so personally. I've wondered too, Phaedrus had said, and in a puzzled voice he added, I think maybe it's because every teacher tends to grade up students who resemble him, him the most. If your own writing shows neat penmanship, you regard the more important in a student than if it doesn't. If you use big words, you're going to like students who write with big words. Sure, what's wrong with that, Deweese had said. Well, there's something wacky here, Phaedrus had said, because the students I like the most, the ones I really feel a sense of identity with, are all failing. Hmm. Deweese had completely broken up with laughter at this and left Phaedrus feeling miffed. He had seen it as a kind of scientific phenomenon that might offer clues leading to new understanding. And Deweese had just laughed. 
At first, he thought Deweese was just laughing at his unintended insult to himself. But that didn't fit because Deweese wasn't a derogatory kind of person at all. Later, he saw it was a kind of super truth laugh. The best students always are flunking. Every good teacher knows that. It was a kind of laughter that destroys tensions produced by impossible situations. And Phaedrus could have used some of it because at that, this time, he was taking things way too seriously. These enigmatic responses of Deweese gave Phaedrus the idea that Deweese had access to a huge terrain of hidden understanding. Deweese always seemed to be concealing something. He was hiding something from him, and Phaedrus couldn't figure out what it was. Then a strong fragment. The day when he discovered Deweese seemed to have the same puzzled feeling about him. A light switch in Deweese's studio didn't work, and he asked Phaedrus if he knew what was wrong with it. He had a slightly embarrassed, slightly puzzled smile on his face, like the smile of an art patron talking to a painter. The patron is embarrassed to reveal how little he knows, but is smiling with the anticipation of learning more. Unlike the Sutherlands, who hate technology, Deweese, as so, as so far removed from it, he didn't feel it any particular minutes. Deweese was actually a technology buff, a patron of the technologies. He didn't understand them, but he knew what he liked, and he always enjoyed learning more. He had the illusion the trouble was in the wire near the bulb. He became immediately a pop. Toggling the switch, the light went out. If the trouble had been in the switch, he felt there would have been a lapse of time before the trouble showed in the bulb. Vaders did not argue with this, but went across the street to the hardware store, bought a switch, and in a few minutes had it installed. It worked immediately, of course, leaving Deweese puzzled and frustrated. How did you know the trouble was in the switch, he asked because it worked intermittently when I jiggled the switch. Well, couldn't it jiggle the wire? No. Phaedrus's cocksure attitude angered Deweese, and he started to argue. How do you know all that, he said. It's obvious. Well then, why didn't I see it? You don't have some familiarity. When it's not obvious, is it? Deweese always argued from this strange perspective that made it impossible to answer him. This was the perspective that gave Phaedrus the idea Deweese was concealing something from him. It wasn't until the very end of his stay in Bozeman that he thought he saw in his own analytic and methodical way what the perspective was. At the park entrance, we stop and pay a man in a smoky bear hat. He hands us a one-day pass in return, and I see an elderly tourist take a movie of us, then smile from under his... All right, all right, that last part. So, 
he's just talking about uh familiarity with systems right and uh he knew where the problem was in the wire because he understood how wiring was done and you know that every foot there's a there's a staple that holds the wire to the two by four <laughs> that's why you can't jiggle wire on one end and have it jiggle at the other end because every foot there's a staple or every joist <laughs> oh yeah but you have to know what the inside of a wall looks like to have any understanding of the whole thing that's why Vaders was able to just you know one little mini experiment was exactly what oh, yep that's what's wrong <laughs> and the art guy who doesn't understand electricity at all had no idea even where to start because he didn't know the land of electricity even existed or eve's heard that it's existed as a mythical place with no knowledge so everything's magic <laughs> right until you know the system or how, how the system components interact just being able to look at the surface of it doesn't tell you what's wrong with it when it breaks because you don't understand the underlying form you only see it as its existence on the surface in the moment all right honoring honoring the smoky bear hat guy white legs into street stockings and shoes. His wife, who watches approvingly, has identical legs. I wave to them Tourists. as we go by, and they wave back. It's a moment that will be preserved on film for years. Vader's despised this park without knowing exactly why. Because he hadn't discovered it himself, perhaps. People but see. probably not. Something else. The guided tour attitude of the rangers angered him. The Bronx Zoo attitudes of the tourists disgusted him even more. Such a difference from the high country all around. It seemed an enormous museum with exhibits carefully manicured to give the illusion of reality but nicely chained off so the children would not injure them. People entered the park and became polite and cozy and fake to each other because the atmosphere of the park made them that way. In the entire time he had lived within a hundred miles of, of it, he had visited only once or twice. But this is getting way out of sequence. There's a span of about 10 years missing. He didn't just jump from Immanuel Kant to Bozeman. That's a long way. Montana. During the span of 10 years, he lived in India for a long time, studying Oriental philosophy at Barron's Hindu University. As far as I know, he didn't learn any occult secrets there. Nothing much happened at all, except exposures. He listened to philosophers, visit, visited religious persons, absorbed and thought, and then absorbed and thought some more. And that was all. All his letters show is an enormous confusion of contradictions and incongruities and divergences 
and exceptions to any rule he formulated about the thing he observed. He'd entered India, an empirical scientist, and he left India, an empirical scientist, not much wiser than he had been when he'd come. However, he'd been exposed to a lot and had acquired a kind of latent image that appeared in the conjunction with many other latent images later on. Some of these latencies, it should be summarized because they become important later on. He became aware that the doctrinal differences among Hindu and Buddhism and Taoism are not anywhere near as important as the doctrinal differences among Christian Christianity and Islam and Judaism. Holy wars were not fought over them because verbalized statements about reality are never presumed to be the reality itself. In all of the Oriental religions, great value is placed on the Sanskrit doctrine of Tatsu, thou art that, which asserts that everything you think you are and everything you think you perceive are undivided. To realize fully this lack of division is to become enlightened. Logic presumes a separation of subject from object. Therefore, logic is not final wisdom. The illusion of separation of subject from object is best removed by the elimination of physical activity, mental activity, and emotional activity. There are many disciplines for this. One of the most important is a Sanskrit Dahayana, mispronounced in Chinese as Chan, and again mispronounced in Japanese as Zen. Phaedrus never got involved in meditation because it made no sense to him. In his entire time in India, sense was always logical consistency, and he couldn't find any honest way to abandon this belief. That, I think, was credible. Um, ah, psychedelics. <laughs> if only it would have taken a turn. That is a credible way to suspend disbelief and see other realms as they are without opinion or belief. And then we'll go back to IR. But once you see other perspectives, you can't unsee other perspectives. Then you know they exist. Expanding terrain, as he talks about earlier. But one day, in the classroom, the professor of philosophy was blithely expounding on the illusionary nature of the world, or what seemed the 15th time, and Phaedrus raised his hand and asked coldly if it was believed that the atomic bombs that had dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were illusory. The professor smiled and said yes. That was the end of the exchange. Within the traditions of Indian philosophy, that answer may have been correct. But for Phaedrus and for anyone else who reads the newspapers regularly, and is concerned with such thing as mass destruction of human beings, that answer was hopelessly inadequate. He left the classroom 
left India and gave up. He returned to his Midwest, picked up a practical degree in journalism, married, lived in Nevada and Mexico, did odd jobs, worked as a journalist, a science writer, and an industrial advertising writer. He fathered two children, bought a farm and a riding horse and two cars, and was starting to put on middle-aged weight. His pursuit of what had been called the ghost of reason had been given up. That's extremely important to understand. He had given up. Because he'd given up, the surface of <laughs> giving up. It's a great chapter. <laughs> yep. As soon as you give up on the pursuit of epic challenges and greatness, the surface of life can look really shiny and fancy really fast. Or anyway, because there's so many hours in the day when you're not doing anything passionately real. You can only be a slave in a cubby so long. There's so many other hours. And then what do you do? Drink or sleep all day? No. Ah. And he worked reasonably hard and was easy to get along with. And except for an occasional glimpse Go along. of inner emptiness. Get along. Shown in some short stories he wrote at the time. His days passed quite usually. What started him up here into these mountains isn't certain. His wife seems not to know. But I guess it was perhaps some of those inner feelings of failure and the hope that somehow this might take him back on the track again. He'd become much more mature, as if the abandonment of his inner goals had caused him somehow to age more quickly. We exit from the park at Gardner, where so much rain seems to fall, because the mountainsides show only grass and sage in the twilight. We decide to stay here for the night. The town is on high banks on either side of a bridge over a river which rushes over a smooth and clean boulders. Across the bridge, they've already turned the lights on at the motel where we're checking in. But even in the artificial light coming from the windows, I can see each cabin has been carefully surrounded by planted flowers. And so I step carefully to avoid them. I notice things about the cabin too, which I point out to Chris. The windows are all double hung and sash weighted. The doors click shut without looseness. All the moldings are perfectly mitered. There's nothing arty about all this. It's just well done. And something tells me is all done by one person. When we return to the motel from the restaurant, an elderly couple are sitting in a small garden outside the office, enjoying the evening breeze. The man confirms that he's made all these cabins himself and is so pleased it's been noticed that his wife 
who sees this invites us all to sit down. We talk with no need to hurry. This is the oldest entrance to the park. It was used before there were any automobiles. They talk about the changes that have taken place over the years, adding a dimension to what we see all around us. Then it builds to kind of a beautiful thing. This town, this couple, and the years that have gone by here. Sylvia puts her hand on John's arm. I am conscious of the sound of the river rushing past boulders below and a fragrance in the night wind. The woman who knows all the fragrances says it is honeysuckle and we are quiet for a while and I become pleasantly drowsy. Chris is almost asleep when we decide to turn in. Chapter 12. Yeah, when he rolls into the motel with the old couple who have lived there their whole life, the guy built each one of the cabins himself by hand. And Phaedrus talks to him about noticing the quality. For one, that's someone who had time to work on their thing for themselves and their family, right? To produce a place that people want to stay to exchange value, voluntary, artful, intentional, right? But he also said the places weren't arty, you know, arted or whatever, but just the design, the elegance, the well Builtness of the places itself was art. And when he noticed it, said something about it, the craftsman's spouse all of a sudden invited him to sit down and spend a while. Oh, it's so funny. Uh, yeah, if, if you stop by this place, uh, yeah, it doesn't look uh, artsy. <laughs> oh, but there's like a hundred permaculture projects running. More like experiments or uh, concepts in proof <laughs> or something. I have no idea. And more art by the day. Because, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> Art, that's a thing, that's a thing, it's really art. Uh, I see versity, whatever. You build cabins neatly, I'll build metal robot monsters, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, just like the book, it's so funny. If you're by here and you notice it and say something about the system that you see and you really see it, uh, yeah. Chicken Joe will ask you to sit down. <laughs> it's pretty funny. That chapter in the book just got me. I was like, yep, yep, that's how it is. <laughs> it's not art for art's sake. He's building cabins. I'm, I'm building things at work, but you know, mm, potato, potato. <laughs> oh, yep, yep. Anyway, uh, I fell in love with my new welder. <laughs> And I'm building a crazy metal sculpture downstairs. So uh, I don't see anybody popping in, asking questions or discussions. 
on chapter 12. So I'm going to go play. Uh, yep, yep. If you want to follow along, see that title up there at Scrambling University? Yeah, the place to uh, chat along or follow along or watch an illustrated version of this craziness. Uh, yeah. On Telegram, that's t.me slash Scrambling University. Super hard to figure out. YouTube, Scrambling University. Odyssey, Scrambling University. Rumble, Scrambling University. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not even going to tell you the Facebook address. Blah, blah. <laughs> Foodforestfarms.com. If you go there, you can see our Airbnb, our hip camp. Come camp with us. Come stay with us. Come visit the Northwest. Sherpa Services. <laughs> At your service. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, oh, yeah. Recording studio for rent. Uh, you got a band. You want to lay down some tracks? Um, let's see. What else? Oh, oh, yes. World famous coffee. It has been smuggled to two continents that I know of, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. Anyway, air roasted, uh, 84 plus scored or better, which means specialty coffee cooked over a bed of fluid, hot air. So no Bernie, Bernie, just yummy, yummy. Foodforcefarms.com. Try it out. See what you think. Get like two pounds. Go crazy. Get six pounds. You get the best price going and I can ship you a case. Just order anything and say, hey, scrambling, mix me up six pounds. I want to try all your shit. I'll give you a couple of blends, a couple of light roasts, a couple of dark roasts. See what you like. Super easy. Super easy. If you want to play with crypto at checkout, just type in crypto. It makes a whole account go to Zippo. Places the order. Whatever email you stuck in the email, though, should be somewhat real because then I'm going to hit you back on that and say, hey, uh, here's the Bitcoin address. You send funds. I'll send coffee. Yeah, that easy. BTC for the win. Boom. <laughs> the only crypto. The rest are currencies. BTC is an asset, so I can trade it with you. It's a barter. It is a barter. I will barter with you, BTC, for beautiful coffee. Oh, look. Hey, look. It's going by right now on the bottom. I always forget the crawler. Crypto accepted here. Let's go, Brandon. Join the show. All right, all right. Don't read the crawler scrambling. Get on with your day. Go weld some shit. Okay, tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Uh, oh, Seattle New Year's. woo Uh, And rumor has it. If you like fish, you might want to tune into my Facebook, YouTube. Shut me down last night. <laughs> Maybe Odyssey. If Odyssey's working live, I think it was up on Odyssey. So around 5, 5.30 Seattle time. Might want to check out live stream. Just saying. If you like fish. Hmm. Maybe somebody will pirate my channel and do something they shouldn't do. Don't do that. Whoever's pirating. All right. Love you guys. Go weld some shit. I am. Psst. Hey, I got a secret for you. You want to save 33% off Starbucks and Pete's quality specialty coffee and get it delivered directly to your door? 
in 72 hours, usually. Ah, foodforestfarms.com. 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 Foodforestfarms.com.